Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 13th, 2023, and my guest is psychologist Adam Mastriani. His substack is Experimental History. I encourage you to read it. It is phenomenal. This is his third appearance on Econ Talk. He was last here recently in August of 2023 talking about how you can't reach the brain through the ears. That is, how hard it is to tell someone something and then for them to remember it, absorb it, and apply it. Today's conversation is a sequel and maybe also a prequel. We're going to continue to talk about learning and the acquisition of wisdom and understanding based on some other writing you've you've done, Adam, and if uh, whatever we get to, we'll link to. Uh, but we're going to start with an essay you wrote called uh, You'll Forget Most of What You Learn. What Should You Do About That? Adam, welcome back to Econ Talk. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's good to see you again. Good to see you. Let's talk about formal education, uh, what we call the classroom. Uh, as you start in your essay, we, most of us spend years there. Do we really forget most of what we heard? Most? In fact, almost all? Maybe all? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you could answer this question a few different ways, right? So, so people have done some studies on this where they tried to do the formal thing and track uh, the things that people are supposed to learn in their classes and then follow up with them the years later. And I mean, you can get pretty much every number you want, depending on how long you wait, how you do the test. Um, but it's somewhere between a lot of what people learn they lose and pretty much everything. Uh, and I mean, you can run this test on yourself, right? Like I graduated from uh, college uh, in 2014. And as just a little test, I tried to list every class that I took. I knew that there were 32 because I took four every semester. Um, and I got to 19 out of the 32. Um, and so if I can't even name uh, a good chunk of the classes that I took less than 10 years ago, I mean, maybe that knowledge is accessible in a different way, but clearly it's not very accessible. Um, and the the other example I have of this was just... Um, uh, happening upon an episode of um, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, where a, a woman, to the dismay of all the fifth graders on stage, is screaming over and over, there are 352 feet in a yard. Um, so it, it's bleak. Whatever the number is, it's not, it's not a great one. And one answer to that, and it was the answer I used to give, um, it's interesting, I think as an economist with a free market bent most of my life, I had trouble, still have a little bit of trouble, but I certainly had trouble when I was younger accepting that really horribly stupid, irrational things would persist. Figured people would usually figure things out, make them better. So the idea that we would spend 12 to 16 years in a classroom and get, quote, almost nothing out of it, seemed improbable to me. It still does a little bit. I'm gonna so I'm gonna defend it a little bit, but I'm very sympathetic to your point now that I'm older. Um one argument would be, well, okay, you don't learn a lot you don't remember facts. 
right? I don't remember uh, atomic weight. I don't remember exactly what the redshift is. Uh, I know it has something to do with speed of things and their frequencies changing. But that's not really what, those are just facts. They're not important. I, you know, I can Google those or look them up in a book. What's important are modes of thinking. And that's what I learned in school. I learned how to think, or I learned uh, frameworks for thinking. And that's what I learned. And that's more important than facts. Yeah, well, I think two problems with that. One is, it does really seem that what we're doing a lot of the time in the classroom is trying to transmit the facts. Um, that, that if you went to, into a classroom and they were like, look, we know you're not going to remember any of the facts here, and you can look them up anyway. What we're really going to do is teach how to think. I go like, okay. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be a point at which the teaching to think actually happens. Um, I know that this is the conceit behind uh, higher education. Uh, the example I use in the piece is, if, if you want to learn how to learn, we do actually know something about how to learn, and it is nothing like we get people to learn in undergrad. So, for instance, all of the things that people naturally do to try to remember things better, highlight things in, in their textbooks, um, uh, you know, take bullet-pointed notes, rereading things. We don't have any – there's pretty good evidence that that doesn't help you remember those things. Um, certainly cramming doesn't help you remember. Most of the, the the incentives that we create for people encourage them to cram for the test, take the test, and then don't remember anything afterward. So if that is what we're doing, which I agree we're doing some of, but it doesn't seem to really be what we're trying to do, and it doesn't seem to be what we mainly do. So here at Shalom College, we do – for the first year or so of uh, the student's experience, read great books in small seminars uh, and explore them. And I do think, besides finding out what happened in the Odyssey, I do think students acquire insights into themselves and learn how to read uh, from that experience, which is much more important than knowing what happened to Odysseus um, when he encounter the sirens. So I think there's some of it, but I certainly agree with you that let's call it the lecturing format. I was a very interactive lecturer, but still I lectured. I think the lecturing format is pretty dismal in being transformative. Uh, and I think, um, I, I think back to my college astronomy class, I don't remember one thing from it. Now, it doesn't mean I got nothing out of it, but I don't remember one thing. And that's really weird because I love the nighttime sky. And one of the things I've learned since I took my astronomy class, unless I learned it and forgot it, is that when you look up at the nighttime sky in a decent place, meaning not too much light pollution, and you see thousands of stars, uh, virtually every, and in most cases, every star that you see is in the Milky Way. That's extraordinary. When I learned that fact, and I learned it about six years ago from a, a friend of my nephew who was staying with us for a night in a place with really good stars, he just mentioned that in an offhand way. I thought, well, that can't be true. I, I, I know that. But I don't, didn't know it, and I think it is true. And the only exception is that maybe there's like, I think it's Andromeda, you can kind of see is a sort of smudge with the naked eye. But every single star you see is from the Milky Way, which means that you are seeing one three hundred billionth at most of the stars in the universe. And to me, that's a mind-boggling thing. And for, I hope, 
maybe for some of our listeners, that would be the only thing they take away from our conversation, Adam. Probably not. But, <laughs> but is that not extraordinary? And why would I not want to know that in college unless I knew it, was told it, forgot it, and when I got older and heard it, I was in a better place. Uh, yeah. I was more interested. Very possible. But it is remarkable that I literally cannot, cannot name one thing I learned. Yeah. Um, and I think the, uh, the important part of that fact isn't necessarily like that particular ratio or even necessarily that every star you see is, is in the Milky Way. I think the important thing to take away from it is you are very, very, very small. And the things that you can see are a very, very tiny sliver of all the things that exist. And putting the numbers and the facts to it help access that experience. Um, but, I, but I think it is that thing that, that is quite important. Um, and it probably helps if you receive that knowledge as you are looking at the stars. Um, right? There's a reason why that, uh, that feeling tends to arise when we are able to do that um, and why... Uh, I, I feel like I can access a little bit of what you're talking about, this feeling of being very small when you just describe it to me. But right now I feel kind of big. I'm in a room where I own all the stuff in it, and I kind of feel like I'm the center of the universe. You know, I live in a city, uh, and so I don't feel all that small at all. Um, and so it, it's not even really – like the, the fact is a handle that's bolted onto the thing that we really want to get, which is this knowledge of being very small. Um, maybe knowledge isn't even the right word for it. Or – a feeling of awe, a feeling of wonder. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to give one more uh, example, though, and I want you to, to react to it because I think it's sort of interesting. Um, I think it was third grade. I'd have been fifth, somewhere in between third and fifth grade. Uh, we had to do an assignment on um, Greece, the country, mostly ancient Greece. So some people did the culture, some one person did, I don't know what, different history, different pieces of it. And one of, one of my classmates whose name, of course, I've forgotten, but I don't remember. I do remember his report vividly. He was assigned uh, Greek military history, and his entire report was uh, one sentence: Greece, well, maybe two. Greece has been in many wars, too many to talk about right now. He sat down. <laughs> it's a great speech. It's a great presentation, and remarkably yeah. memorable. Now, I want you to respond yeah. to that because it's the only thing I remember pretty much in from that class or maybe the whole year. And um, why do I remember that? Uh, it's funny. I've told it dozens of times. I've repeated it. Uh, so jokes and stories, we do often remember not deep understanding, wisdom, and so on. And I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there, there's probably so much to that story that i'm assuming um that that you that you know that that i don't know right that um uh that that kid could have been the class clown he could have been self-aware about this so it's not clear to me from the story whether he was self-aware or whether he was sort of a savant like a child beyond his years uh um or whether uh i, I also i think you said, said he i was just assuming it was a boy um that it was, uh in my memory yeah that, yeah. Um, or, or whether um, he just he was just really just phoning it in and didn't even realize that that was a very silly thing to say. Um, uh, I, I have a similar story from um, 
uh, from social studies class in ninth grade or something, we were talking about the Treaty of Versailles. And uh, we were reading out of the textbook. I think we were going through the room and each of us was like reading a paragraph. And uh, this this kid, Isaac, had to read the first time we encountered the word Versailles. And he said, mm. Versailles, um, yeah. which which there is. I grew up in Ohio. There is a town uh, where people they don't say Versailles, but they do say Versailles. Um, and like we stopped and everybody laughed at him. Um, and I remember years later, people would talk about Versailles. Um, and so I can't even, I'm embarrassed to say this. I can't even tell you which war it was that the Treaty of Versailles ended, but I do know what it was like for this guy to be ridiculed in front of his classmates for, um, for mispronouncing it. Um, which I don't think was the thing that our teacher hoped that we kept with us, you know, 20 years later. Let's then go to the to the next part of your insight. So we have a reality. I think it's a reality. Uh, there have been a number of tests in economics on this. I used to be skeptical of them, and I'm not anymore. How little people remember of microeconomic theory, say, after the course is over. Uh, and I think Robert Frank on this program made the observation that Months, uh, after, if it's far enough after the course is over, people who haven't taken the class do as well as people who took the class. Should be a very good <laughs> measure of how bad learning is. Let's assume it's true. Despite that, uh, you have something positive to say about the learning that we experience. Um, what is it? So it, it isn't the case that we lose everything. And I think what remains uh, is really interesting, and it seems to remain for a long time, even without really using it, doing all the things that we normally do to, to keep memory strong. I mean, we just told two stories from our childhoods um, that uh, you, you said you've told yours before. I don't know if I've ever told that story before, but it was very accessible to me. And so what was it? Uh, in that, in the stories, and what is it in the memories that remain? Like, what are those? And uh, what I call them in the, in the piece is vibes, um, for for lack of a better word, which is somewhere between implicit and explicit memory. It is some sort of mixture of feelings. Um, it is also, I, I think, sort of propositional knowledge that that can express, but not very easily. And so, what was the vibes of like seeing that kid? Um, mispronounce Versailles and be ridiculed? Well, I learned uh, things like, you better be really careful in front of your peers and don't do anything stupid because it will follow you for a long time. Um, uh, I, I learned uh, that can happen at any time. Um, I learned that you know something totally arbitrary uh, could like lose you esteem among your peers. None of this had anything to do with what we were supposed to be learning at the time. Um, another thing that comes to mind uh, when you mentioned uh, remembering um, microeconomics, I, I took a, a macro class my freshman year of college. I don't really remember anything about the class except for there was a day at the end when she showed us slides from her trip to China and like students started walking out and she said, <laughs> she was like, don't, like, don't, I'm, I'm going to test you on this. <laughs> and uh and so I, I learned something important about what it takes to like retain people's knowledge um, and like build a moment inside a classroom. I learned uh, something about the arbitrariness of, of knowledge, right? The, the, the thing that she had to resort to was sort of this cudgel of you have to sit and listen to 
basically me telling you about my vacation because um, uh, because I can test you on it. None of these things have anything to do with macroeconomics. I can't tell you anything about it. Uh, but but I think those things are, are are best described as vibes. Fortunately, as the host of the show, I don't have to reveal what I remember about macroeconomics. Um, <laughs> I think it's greater than your knowledge, but I don't want to go any farther than that. Any further than that. Um, I, I want to. This is awkward. I want to disagree with you a little bit, uh, and it's your essay, so uh, you can maybe I misunderstand it. I, I think. The things that you're talking about that remain, um, I, I think you're trying to salvage the classroom by saying you did learn something. Maybe it's enough to say you felt something. And, mm-hmm. and I want to suggest the possibility that much of life, our experiences, of course, they have lessons. Many of our experiences produce lessons. Don't mispronounce words. Don't say words that you're not 100% sure of. But I think it's more than that, a lot more than that. And it's about that much of life isn't the things we learn, but it's the things we feel. Now, as as academics, that's very disturbing. Um, we don't like it. You you refer to that at times in your piece in a different essay we, we might get to today. But isn't the lesson here that that much of life is how we experience things rather than the content, and that that maybe that's okay, but it's definitely not the alleged purpose of formal classroom learning. Yeah, no, I, I think we're in agreement on this. I think because the word "feel" does a lot of work, um, that usually I think we assume when we're talking about like I felt something, we assume that means an emotion, and. And obviously, emotion is part of this, but it isn't just that, like, I felt sad at this time. Uh, when we say that word feel, what we really mean is I had some kind of experience that is difficult to articulate. Um, and so emotions are part of that, but they're not all of that. Like, when I saw that professor losing the classroom, uh, I, I did feel something like... Um, uh, like secondhand anxiety. I, I felt sympathy. Um, but I think the, what those feelings were, um, like my brain's way of telling me, like, pay attention to this moment. Something important is happening. And that's why we're going to encode it. And so those emotions are, are almost like tags in a filing cabinet that allow you to, to, uh, to find it again. Um, so, so yeah, I agree. And, and I don't think that, um, uh, like, I don't have any hope of salvaging the classroom in particular, but I do think these things can happen there. And I think they can happen more if you appreciate that those are the things that are much more likely to make it beyond the few months after your, your class. Um, that like I effortlessly remembered that experience years later without ever having been tested on it, without ever, no one ever told me I was going to be tested on it. Something about it made it stick. Uh, and I do think it was a feeling. So you give an example of what you call bad vibes and good vibes from your psychology uh, education, which are which is both amusing and uh, I thought informative. So, give us the example of the bad vibe, the opening uh, moments of one psychology class, and a different one, a good one. Yeah, the 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 bad vibes were in a cognitive psychology class I took um, that I remember vividly. In the first lecture, the professor said, uh, "You know, cognitive psychology is pretty boring." 
And, you know, the, the bottom fell out of my stomach because I went, oh, no, like I have to I have to take this class. Um, and, uh, and and it turned out I mean, it turned out to be pretty boring because he felt that way about it. Uh, I do remember that. But uh, as I point out in the essay, there is something I really remember well from that class, which is the concept of greebles, which are like weird little alien formations that were used to settle or try to settle a debate in cognitive psychology and neuroscience about like, what is this? this patch of brain that we call the fusiform face area that seems to light up in response to faces. Is it specific to faces or is it actually for processing like fine configural details? And so they made these little alien creatures. They called greebles. They trained people to distinguish between them and then found that the fusiform face area also responds to, uh, to greebles as well as faces after you are acquainted yourself with them. Obviously, the problem here being the like, well, the, the Greebles kind of have faces, so um, yeah. But so, well, the, the, and, and that's worth at least uh, some healthy fraction of sixty thousand dollars for the tuition you paid <laughs> for that class. It, it, the tragedy of that story is that you remember two things: one, a really inexcusable, unprofessional opening remark by a faculty <laughs> member, and two, a phenomenon that is really not that interesting. It's not a transformative experience, but you have a good one. Yeah, yeah. The the good vibes were a different psychology class I took. It was Psych 101, um, and the, uh, the the professor, his name was Danny Oppenheimer. He um, he stood up at the front of the class, and he had this whole routine that was all based around a bag of M&Ms. I don't remember the whole routine, but I remember the fact of the routine, uh, parts of which included um, you know, getting somebody to stand up. And he's like, OK, I'm going to talk to the bag of M&Ms and he tosses it to the student. The student catches it. And he's explaining that what the brain has to do in order to coordinate the body in order to capture the M&Ms is pretty amazing. You have to be able to tell the difference between where the bag of the M&Ms is and the rest of the world around it. This is not a trivial computational problem to solve. You have to coordinate your limbs to put your hands in the right position to catch it. And I was like, oh, this is all pretty cool. Like this guy's throwing M&Ms at students. Like that's kind of neat. Uh, he, he tells the student to toss the bag back to him. Um, he catches it. He goes, obedience. That's also something that we'll, we'll catch this class. And like, no, the student's a little embarrassed. Everybody's laughing. I'm getting goosebumps even just thinking about it. And I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. And then, uh, he tosses the, the, the M&Ms back to the student and he says, okay, now toss it back to me. And the student doesn't do anything. And he goes, learning. We'll also talk about that. And I go, oh, man, he, he predicted what the student would do. Um, and it did make me feel a little bit like maybe there is something to this psychology thing if you could do this with it. Uh, and 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 the rest of the the semester felt that way. I, I remember uh, weeping at the end of the semester, um, just at the like the beauty and the amount of knowledge that I felt like I had uh, encountered. Not that I could remember all of it afterward, but there's a reason why I became a psychologist. Um, that I kept chasing that feeling that I had. Um, that there were interesting things to discover here and we could do cool things with them. Um, so those were some good vibes. And, and you mentioned in your essay that even though we had this delightful interaction, experiential moment with the student in the opening lecture, the rest of the class was just him at 2X telling you stuff. Yes. And yes. it was sufficiently interesting that it was that powerful, that it, that it made you weep when it was over. Do you really think that's all you got out of it was that feeling, though? I mean, I, I do think that because, I mean, it was my major and, and I kept, uh, I stayed in the field. Um, there's probably more that I remember from that class because I kept using it. Um, so it's not zero. It's definitely not zero. 
um, I don't know if it's a very high percentage. Um, and it's not, sorry, go ahead. No, but my point is the fact you can't remember it is not yes. that decisive. Yes. You know, maybe yeah. you used it in other ways and your brain retained certain patterns that matter. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but for the, the amount of time and attention that I paid to that class uh, <laughs> at the time, it, it, feels, yeah. it doesn't feel like a great ratio. Um, and, and I mean, I, I do think this ultimately makes sense. Like we, there is something there, right? I'm glad that I took that class. It changed my life. But at the time when you're in it, it feels like what you're doing is assembling all this house of cards of facts and knowledge that then topples over afterward. Um, rather than trying to optimize for the things that stick around much later or rather, or at least teaching in such a way where you realize that like the point of this cannot be that at the end of this, we administered to you a multiple choice test and we hope you get like 95% of the questions right. And then we hope that 10 years later, you would still get uh, most of the questions right. That if you're doing that, I think you're wasting your time. So let me try a different take on this. I lived with my parents uh, for 18 years and then some summers. Uh, the 18 years was full time. There, there were some times where I was asleep. Uh, there <laughs> were times when my dad was on a trip. There's time my mom was on a trip, but it's been a lot of hours together. I don't remember very many of them. I really don't. Uh, I remember more than I can say. Every once in a while, a memory will arise that I had forgotten, whatever that means, that I couldn't consciously bring to mind. But when we think of the quantity of hours, let's just talk about the, you know, four hours at night for 18 years. It, it's thousands of hours where my brain has very little direct recall. And yet, I'm pretty confident they shaped me. I want to say two things, actually. One is, most of what I do remember is vibe. <laughs> uh, I remember uh, that they cared for me probably more than I remember the content of what they wanted to me to absorb. But my dad was very much a teacher. And as an amateur, he was an amateur teacher, but he loved teaching me things. And I don't think I remember very many of them, but I do remember that vibe. And I wouldn't want to say, I don't think that even though I can't remember them, they probably didn't. I don't want to say they didn't have much impact. So I'm, I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm torn. I, I find your argument profound and, and there's more to say. We're going to get to it in a minute, but I wonder if it's, um, if you protest too much. Yeah, I think it comes down to what is it that we hope to do? Um, and are we doing that or not? That if what uh, your father hoped, and if what my Psych 101 professor had hoped, is that we really got the, you know, the multiple choice question knowledge at the end of it, I think their hopes were misplaced. But that might not have, be, might not have been what they actually hoped. And, and in fact, I sent my professor uh, th this essay, and, uh, and I think he largely agreed that... that um, the point of that class wasn't that at the end of it, I can tell you what the fundamental attribution error is, or I know what the, um, you know, the cerebrum does. Um, it was to understand at a deeper level what psychology is about, that it is possible 
to ask and answer questions about the human mind and, and some sense of how that's done. And, and that does uh, touch plenty of explicit knowledge, right? I should be able to tell you some things, and I am able to tell you some things. Um, but what I really should be able to do is, um, I, well, I don't know what I'm, what I'm able to do. What I really, what really should happen to me is that I come away going, there's something interesting and important here. Some of my theories of the world are constrained. I know some things not to be true. I know a few things to be true. Um, and I have a better sense of how one might go about doing the business of psychology. Um, I mean, that is what I ended up doing, you know, the, the rest of my life. Um, and so I, I think maybe the hope is similar for a parent that like, yes, maybe when they, when they teach you how to, how to change a tire, they really do hope that you remember how to change the tire the next time you have a flat tire. Um, but I think any parent's hope is exactly what you described, which is you knew that you were cared for. Um, and beyond that, like whether, you know, um, like the proper way to, to descale a bathtub, um, or, uh, you know, the, the, the correct, um, amount of water to give a certain kind of plant. Like these things are so much further down the priorities list. Um, that in the moment, you know, we hope that people remember these, but uh, we hope that they remember the lesson behind the lesson, um, which is that there is a certain way of living that is good. Uh, and there's a certain way that this person feels about you, which is also good. Um, I'm sure I'm going to fall into the same trap when, when I'm a father. <laughs> like, I really hope that they remember all the specific things, but obviously I hope they remember the, the thing behind the thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll read a quote, a beautiful quote from the piece um, where you try to describe what you're trying to describe. Adam, I think you're really interested in that challenge. How hard is yeah. to describe the things you try to you want to describe? You said, "quote." You say, "quote." So far, I've used the word "feelings" to describe these indelible, ineffable memories. That implies that these memories are all about emotions, and no doubt emotions are part of them. But there's even more than that. It's hard to describe, but the transition of winter into spring. Seeing the Statue of Liberty in person for the first time, the phase shift that happens when you enter a dance party, the last day of camp, being a, at a wedding that probably shouldn't happen. I'm sure these all evoke images and emotions, but there's something underneath it all, binding it all together. That's what I mean by feeling, a combination of emotions, aesthetics, meaning, and values. And when you layer feelings on top of each other, you get a vibe. It's a silly word, but it's the only one that fits. End of quote. You want to say some more things about that try, or try to? It's hard, hard. I know it's hard to put into words. You did a lovely job <laughs> trying there. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I, if, I, if I could do any better than that. Um, that, that, that I think there, there is a thing there um, that, that when, when I say something like the transition of um, summer into fall, um, I think it evokes, I mean, for me anyway, it evokes something. It evokes uh, like school is coming, change is happening. Um, uh, I used to talk about this with my sister when we were, when we were kids that like fall felt a certain way. And when we say felt, it wasn't exactly emotions, right? Like there, there's emotions in there. Some of it is trepidation and excitement for school. Um, uh, but it, it really was more like there's a way that is fall. Um, and, uh, and when you're not in it, you, you don't feel it. Um, man, it is really hard to describe this thing, but I certainly hope the people listening, like also they, they go like, I mean, yeah, I guess you only wouldn't get it if you didn't live in a place where you didn't have fall. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's got a smell. Yeah. I can smell fall. If, if you say, 
Does fall have a smell? All of a sudden, without conscious effort, you can smell. I can smell burning leaves. I can smell a pile of leaves. Um, the air feels different. So it's not. We don't. Yeah, you know. Actually, I think the philosophical term for this is qualia. I mean, which is yes. a phrase I often struggle with what its actual meaning is. It's, it's the full range of how we are conscious of things. The other thing I would just mention. That's what I was trying to get at earlier. I didn't say it very well about um, experience. You know, m- most of the great conversations I've had in my life were not about what I learned from them. There are many conversations I've learned interesting things. This is one of them. I'm sure that I will learn something from talking to you for an hour. But most of what I love and remember about conversations is how they make me feel. And most of them don't make me feel anything, which is a tragedy. But there's a handful that were profound. And it's not because, oh, I learned something really important. It's because I connected yeah. to another human being and and deeply. And that is um, a huge part of life that just, it's outside of learning. And I think a lot of what you're capturing about what we actually remember from the classroom is that level of, it's, a, it's an intimacy. It's not with another human being. It's with a field. Yeah a discipline, yeah. a subject matter, that you could feel your brain working, that you felt alive intellectually. Those are profound, but they're not content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, psychology is a way, uh, and economics is a way. And uh, and sometimes interacting with economists, I it's hard to articulate, but but I can feel... It is a different way than psychology is a way that there, there are some differences in values. I think we could articulate that, you know, if you give a talk in front of economists, you're much more likely to be interrupted and the, uh, the credit and you're more likely to get criticized. Whereas psychologists, we sit patiently until the end of the talk. And then, then we say, thank you so much for your terrific talk. And then maybe we ask some challenging questions. Um, but, but that I think that small cultural difference is, is the mere like filing cabinet tag on the top, on top of like many deep differences. Like that's not a superficial difference. I, I think that is connected somehow to the differences in the way that we go about doing what we do um, in, in a way that I don't know enough about economics to know how it's different there. Um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's hundred percent true. And I think, you know, one of my uh, one of my children says that you know what you study in college is just a um, is your favorite way of looking at the world. You study science, you look at the world a particular way. You study psychology, you look at a particular way. Economics, and they're all different. And you tend to organize the chaos of your uh, the facts and and causal mechanisms that you encounter through that framework. Uh, and if you do it long enough. You forget that it's not the only one, <laughs> yeah. and and you just become, um, and that's very powerful because it, it opens many doors you would not be able to otherwise open, but it closes off other doors that you will not be able to open because you have such a narrow tool. Yeah, yeah, um, you know, to to what you uh, uh, said earlier about the way things make you feel. Uh, I thought about this in the moment, forgot it. Um, one of the quotes I have, I have in the piece is, is this quote that I think is very powerful and good, which is, um, uh, you know, people may not always remember what you say, but they'll always remember the, the way you make you make you feel. And what I think is so funny about that quote is no one remembers who said it, that, that it, it is 
it is sometimes attributed to Maya Angelou, but, um, uh, you know, I looked at some of the, uh, like etymology of this quote and it, no one really knows where it comes from. It comes up, uh, but I think the quote itself is the thing that it is describing, right? No one remembers who says this thing, but you do remember that quote because it does make you feel a certain way because you know it to be true. Um, that there are ways that people made you feel. There's a way that a field made you feel. Um, and the reason I remained a psychologist was because it made me feel a certain way that the affordances that it presented to me were ones that I knew how to grasp and they felt good in my hands when I grasped them. And it felt like I could move around reality, uh, with the handles that it gave me. Um, and, and that was a feeling. Um, and I think you're totally right that, that you get very used to those handles. Um, and you start to, you stop seeing other handles that didn't fit your hands as well. Um, and so now I can only think in the kinds of experiments that you would run to answer questions psychologically. And I don't think in terms of anything else that you could do, um, that, you know, I've been given 32 different types of hammer, um, and no screwdrivers, uh, which is okay. I think, you know, uh, there are plenty of nails in the world to hit and other people will have their screwdrivers and they'll drive them. And you don't have to have all the tools yourself. Um, but that is a thing that goes away. I want to come back to that quote, that unattributed, unknown quote. People won't remember what you said. Um, if that statement is true, let's pretend it's literally true. People don't remember your words, but they remember how you made them feel. It should change how you conduct a conversation, shouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, if uh, I, I think because... What happens is the person comes away with experiencing sort of the emergent property of you. And that property is, of course, made out of some of the things that you say. Um, and so it does make sense to try to say things well. Um, but it, it's not just like the thing that you take from the class is not going to be the answers to the multiple choice questions. The thing that the person takes from interacting with you is not going to be the transcript of your conversation. Um uh, that will be part of it. That's in like the collection, uh, that remains in their head afterward. Um, but it's not all of it. It, it is also, uh, the, the vibe that they got. Um, and I can, and, and I can remember situations where like the vibe that I got was I'm not really welcome in this conversation. Um, even if the words don't say that, um, or where the vibe I got was like the world is full of possibilities and, uh, and like we need to chase after them and grasp them. I have a friend of mine that like, that is the way that I feel when I talk to him. Uh, and that's why I love talking to him. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if we think about this all that much. Um, I don't we really think we think do, about right? like, yeah, I think I, this is fine. Cause I'm, I'm going to say it behooves us to think about it. A word I rarely get to use and often <laughs> uses it, an example of a word that's dying out without anyone's control, but it, it's hanging on because it does have mm -hmm. the occasional, Occasional use. Uh, I may have told the story before. I apologize to listeners. Maybe you've heard it, but um, a friend of mine has told me that he was in graduate school in economics. He's at a picnic with a bunch of people, and they, the minimum wage came up. And he's an economist. Other people were not economists. He said, you know, the minimum wage doesn't uh, – it's not really a good thing because it reduces employment opportunities for low-skill workers. And his – he would then – he told me later, he said – I said, how'd that go over? He said, they edged away from me on the blanket. And, <laughs> you know, 
as a so-called rational economist, I always found that offensive. Like, come on, that's not nice. Why wouldn't you engage? Why wouldn't you mm-hmm. ever say in response to that? And I've had many moments like that in my life. I've talked about it some on the program. Why, why, but why would the other person say, oh, that's interesting. I've never thought of that. That's mm-hmm. not what they say. <laughs> almost no one says that. In fact, almost <laughs> no one ever says, oh, I always thought the minimum wage was good, but you're an economist, so you should know more about it than I do. <laughs> so I guess I've been wrong all my life. That never yeah. happens. They never even say, wow, how would that work? Is that possible? Or is there evidence for that? They edge away from you on the blanket, folks. And that's because they're not hearing the words. To the extent they're hearing them, they're hearing a threat. Not just a threat, I don't agree with you. A threat that says, I'm not a nice person. That's what they heard. (laughs) They heard an announcement. He should have put a, uh, uh, a card around his neck. Stay away. I am not a nice person. I don't have a caring heart. That's what they heard. And I think, well, anyway. Your turn, Adam. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the vibe of, of that sentence, I think, to most people is, I don't care about poor people. Uh, like, yeah. let them starve. Um, yep. And uh, and which is why, if you want to have a discussion about that, you have to begin by giving off good vibes and, and going like, look, we all agree that what we would like is for people who work, including low-skilled, undesirable jobs, that they can make a decent living uh, that allows them to uh, to live a good life. Um, now we might think that the best way to do that is to make it illegal to pay them below a certain amount of money. That makes total intuitive sense. Um, but I have some evidence or there's a lot of evidence that that doesn't actually get us the end that we want. Um, this is actually, I've I've run some studies on, um, people being able to, to convince one another. And one of the issues that we work on is, um, uh, minimum wage. And we ask people, um, is there anything? That could change your mind uh, about these issues. And so some of them are like abortion or gun control. And and often people say, no, there's nothing. But minimum wage is one where people say, if you could show me that it doesn't actually get the thing uh, that I want to get, uh, I, I would change my mind on it. Now, whether that's actually true or not is a separate issue. Um, but I think this is one where uh, if you can peel, uh, if you can get the vibes right. Um, I think people might actually be able to receive the, the data itself. This is t- tough for me too, because it feels so intuitively right. We should just make it illegal to do the thing that we don't want. Um, and, uh, and the idea that we're going to allow people, uh, to do whatever they want feels like, but no, that doesn't get us what we want. You have to make it mandatory. One of the great advantages of a decent economics class is that even if you don't remember anything in particular, you might remember that there is an occasional unintended consequence of a well-intentioned regulation or law, piece of legislation. Um, That's a powerful thing. That's a great thing to have in your uh, mental toolbox. Um, So again, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical of the fact that we learn not that, that it's mostly vibes. I think there are some meta lessons we learn even if we can't articulate them well. But I want to come back. To, oh, let me make that point in a different way. So, um, you know, famous example of unintended consequences: the the city um, has too many snakes, so they they put a bounty on snakes. And if you bring a snake to the 
snake office, you get a, you get paid, you get a, a reward. So the idea is, oh, people will go out and trap snakes and we'll have fewer of them. Of course, if you pick the wrong amount, people will raise snakes <laughs> and that would be defeating the purpose of the, um, of the legislation. And that's a story. And I am, as I get older and, and read pieces like yours, I am overwhelmed by how much people remember lessons that are delivered by stories, fables, parables, uh, jokes, um, things that rhyme, uh, poems, songs, etc. And um, they're underutilized. Uh, they're considered um, cheesy a little bit. You know, it's like a it's like a bad bad form to. When you can give a formal lecture in mathematics, say, versus a story. That snake story I just told, I suspect a year from now, there might be some listeners who actually remember that. And there might even be some listeners who will see a different example and realize the snake story is the same set of unintended incentives. So I think stories and jokes are undervalued. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, what, what that story does, at least what it does for me when I first heard it, um, is, is it, it, uh, evokes this feeling of, oh, like the, the, it, uh, the way I first heard the story, there's two turns in it. The first turn is people start raising snakes and I go, oh yeah, people would do that. Like I hadn't really thought through the implications of this, but yeah, if I was in this situation, it makes total sense to raise this, raise the snakes. And then the second turn in the story is, Oh no, we're, we're paying, paying people to raise snakes. We're not going to pay bounties on snakes anymore. And then people release the snakes into the wild. And, and then they go, Oh yeah, of course they would do that. Now if I'm not going to pay for my snakes anymore, I'm just going to let them go again. And I think that, that, Oh, that feeling, um, I, that is to me what the vibe is. And I think the, like the explicit knowledge of this is like, a checklist thing where it, you you say like make sure for every policy you check for unintended consequences. I think that's actually much much less effective than this feeling of I feel a little bit suspicious when we do things that there might be something weird that happens. And I think that's actually the important thing that when you hear about policies that people want to put in place, you just get a little like I don't know, and that is what encourages you to go looking for like well, but that might cause this thing and this thing and this thing. Um, and and I, I I think that's the vibe at work rather than um, like the explicit knowledge of the story. I don't think people even need to refer back to like, well, isn't this like the snakes and and paying for them? Uh, I think it is internalizing this feeling of, of skepticism and almost queasiness that the world is very simple and you always get exactly the things that you are trying to pay for. That that's the, that's the vibe to me. Yeah, and and it's aha, it's an aha moment. It's the and then what that economists often want to get people to imagine and start thinking about. Um, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell another story if I might. And I'm probably going to get it wrong because I can't remember the details, but it doesn't matter. It's it's about a prisoner war camp or some kind of setting where there's guards and there's workers. And every night uh, or once a week, maybe, one of the workers uh, comes to the front gate. To, he's going back to his outside the camp life. And he's got uh, a wheelbarrow with a tarp over it. And the guard's suspicious. What's this guy stealing? And he looks under the tarp and he can't find anything. And they play this game for a couple of years. 
to find the guards reassigned to another camp. And before he leaves, he goes to the prisoner or the worker in the prisoner war camp and he says, you know, I just had a suspicion, you know, that you're smuggling something out of the camp and I've never been able to find it. Am I right? He says, yeah, I was smuggling something. He goes, what was it? He goes, wheelbarrows. (laughs) So that to me is a metaphor for what we're talking about in the classroom. And of course, it applies to econ talk, this weird experience of doing 900 plus hours of conversation with people. I think I'm smuggling out knowledge, but it turns out I'm smuggling wheelbarrows. People are learning other things from this than the content of, of the conversations that take place, which is very flattering. And, I, and I, I've embraced it. I think it's a beautiful thing. But what is the implication of that for being a, a faculty member in a normal economics or psychology department? If you're listening to this and you recognize this as a reality and a truth, how should it change the way you run your class? In one way, is you could say you should tell more stories, you should be more, but but let's suppose that I really care about the vibe part of it. I don't want to react to your insight and say, I guess I better ask them to repeat it, the the equations more to their <laughs> friends outside of the classroom, right? Which is a classic memory trick. You should repeat things you want yeah. to re- retain. It works a little bit, maybe. I don't think it's a bad idea. Actually, you have to do it three times. If it didn't work, it's because you didn't do it enough. So I don't know <laughs> if any of that's true. But let's suppose you're faced with this reality. You're going to spend hours with this group of students. Should it change what you do or should you just say, well, nothing I can do about it? <laughs> I think it should change what you do. So uh, how, how it changes for me is uh, – I mean, I, I can best tell us through the, the example of um, how I tried to teach uh, students the R programming language. Um which uh, is like, I don't know, I don't know any other programming languages. So maybe this is an especially counterintuitive one, but there's a real hump that you have to get over at the beginning where you start to think like the programming language wants you to think. And students find this very difficult. And in a class that is meant to teach students the R programming language, obviously you have to spend some time doing the things that, that sort of multiple choice knowledge. It's, it's not that we want anyone to like memorize the, the commands and we test them on them later, but you do need some of that. So we do work on some of that. But the most important thing that I can get students to understand is that it's okay that they are going to feel like it's stupid and pointless and and like Byzantine and Kafka-esque how they interact with this programming language. And that's fine because most students feel like something's gone wrong when they hit that wall, uh, that they like do something and it doesn't work. And they go, well, I'm not doing it right. Like this is a stupid, um, like why is it so dumb? And if I can get them to understand the vibe of it's okay to feel dumb um, I still, I've worked with this language for 10 years and I still feel dumb when I interact with it. That like, in fact, you need to accept feeling dumb in order to interact with, with this, uh, language. Well, if I can show them that through the way that I interact with it, uh, that like I type, type stuff in and, and fail. And then I go, oh, I just got to Google that. Um, and, and to show that like, I'm not, uh, like I'm not losing f- or passion for doing this as, as I'm interacting with it. Uh, and I, the students who pick up on that vibe, who who come along with it, who go like, oh, this is a different way of learning for me that I'm used to. Um, they're the ones who continue using the language afterward. Like they're the ones who actually learn it. The the ones who try to master it in the way that they would master like multiplication tables, just memorization. Um, they don't get anywhere. It doesn't submit to that kind of learning. Um, 
So, so that's part of the, the difference that, that like I, I project to them the vibe of, uh, like I'm pretty stupid at this. Um, and that's fine. Like I get by doing this thing. I spend a lot of time on Stack Overflow. This might all be out of date now that you can just ask Chad GPT, um, how to do your, uh, coding for you. Um, but even there, it's, it's like, look, you're, you may get to the point one day where you speak this fluently. That takes a long time. And to get there, you really have to use it all the time. You're probably not going to do that. What I would rather, uh, convey to you is this vibe of it's all right not to know stuff. It's okay to look stuff up all the time. Um, and, and only if you get that vibe, will you actually get out of this language, what it has to give you. Um, so that, that is, I think the the difference for, for going for a vibes based approach. Yeah. And I think there's a profound implication of that, both for parents and teachers, which is, I think we already know this, but it's really hard to actually behave accordingly which is that when your students ask you a question or a child asks you a question, a lot of times the right answer is not to tell them the right answer. And you write about this in the essay, you know, they'll ask a question, how do I do that? I'm really frustrated and you, you don't tell them. You don't, and you don't t- not tell them by saying, well, you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. That's uh, part of the class. <laughs> you just say, I don't, I don't remember that either. I usually just Google it. And mm-hmm. there are probably times when you do remember it, but you want them to go through that. And so often, because we do not appreciate the lesson that you're conveying in this essay, we think the right way to educate is to make sure they know the answer. So we tell them the answer. And we tell our, we write our, the essay for our kid because they'll get a good, not that they'll get a good grade, so they'll know what the right way is to, to write a good essay. And that's, a, a, not, that's worse than a waste of time. Not only do they not learn something, they, don't, they learn something that's not helpful, which is to give up or to seek a third, uh, a different a different source. And I think the, um, I think the implication also is very important in the area, of, in the era of chat GPT. You know, we're, we're, as I think many colleges are, we're trying to figure out here at Shalem College. I, I don't want rules on chat GPT for, for our students because I don't want to enforce them. I don't even try to figure out how I could enforce them. But I do want them to believe that if they ask ChatGPT to figure out what this poem means or this passage, uh, they won't experience the full effect because the goal is to figure out what the passage means. Part of the goal is to experience the struggle and the knowledge that comes from the nth time. And um, that's hard. We don't yeah. live in an era where that kind of discipline and and perseverance is generally rewarded. There are many, we make life easy for everybody as much as possible. So it's going to be an interesting time as we deal with this. Yeah. I, th- I think part of what implies to students that it's not okay to struggle is, is that we evaluate them. Um, uh, <laughs> this is a, another essay I wrote about uh, wanting to be a teacher, but they made me a cop. Um, where if I try to tell students that like, it's okay to be stupid about this and to not know how it works and to Google stuff. And then six weeks later, I go, now's test day. And like, uh, you know, laptops down, just tell me all the things that you memorized. I, I was lying to them, right? I, I was, uh, I'm, I'm not conveying the vibe that I actually wanted to convey. If it is true that you can struggle and fail and the thing that you're supposed to figure out is how to figure out things then I should create an environment where you are allowed to figure out things. Uh, and if I'm going to evaluate you, I have to figure out a way of evaluating you that that evaluates your ability to figure out things. Um, 
and and I think that's sort of at odds with the thing that it's trying to assess. Um, so yeah, so if if you yeah, so go, go ahead. Um, you go ahead. So if you want, uh, if you want um, people to figure stuff out, I don't think you give them a multiple choice question uh, test at the end. Uh, I think that heavily implies to them that uh, the, like the vibe here is that. Uh, knowledge is arbitrary, um, and the point of learning is to satisfy my whims and to divine my intentions to know the things that I am going to ask you later. Um, and, and I think that that is like exactly the wrong vibe that we want to give people. Yeah, I used to do that pretty ruthlessly and relentlessly, actually. I used to tell my students that your job in this course is to start, learn how to think like I do. At the end of it, you might decide it's a bad way to think, but that's how you're going to be evaluated. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you what the assumptions you should make to help you answer a question. My questions are a little bit open-ended and the best answers are the ones I deem interesting and you have to learn what that is. And that's really cruel, actually. Um, it was hard and a lot of people didn't like it. And I now older understand that. Having said that, students who managed to get over that hump got um, a tool that many of them, I think, still use, which is deeply gratifying. Um, your remark about tricking them or seemingly misleading them reminds me of something else you wrote recently about went about science. And wouldn't it be nice to live not in a classroom where I tell you what I know about the subject, but where we explore a subject together? Uh, you call it Science House. So you have a bunch of really smart people who hang out together and through actually through conversation rather than lecturing, learn to, as the, the novices learn, get initiated into the, the experience of science and the, um, the so-called experts convey that, but in a different way than they do in a, in a classroom. Uh, it's, not, it's not dissimilar from um, the stories that, that Ed, Ed Lemer told of, of, and we'll put a link up to this episode, it's one of my all-time favorites of how he helped a student understand something rather than telling it to her. Um, so that's a lovely idea. It has no viability in today's world because students are buying a credential in most situations, and we're providing that as educators um, and charging them to provide the credential, which is going to be a multiple-choice exam that you cleared a hurdle of 95 or 90 or whatever it is, or 80, depending on the test. Um, as opposed to what we, again, I like to think what we try to do here at Shalom College, we're definitely a swimming against the tide. We're basically saying to people, uh, come explore with us for a while and you'll grow from it and you'll end up making your country better because you'll be a better human being. You won't know necessarily as much as somebody who takes a multiple choice test uh, that day of the exam, but 10 years from now, you'll be a different person. I think that's what education should be. It's clear that the model in most societies, most systems is credentialing. And I think that is, I don't know if it's tragic or not, but it's not education, something else. Yeah. <laughs> something that I've realized about the world is, is everybody is looking for someone else to do their homework for them. Um, like that is the point of a credential is I can't tell how good you are or like I don't, I don't want to do the work that it would take 
to know if you have the skills necessary to do the thing that I want you to do, or I don't even understand understand the skills well enough to do this. Or like I know if you are get, trying to get a programming job, they'll ask you to program. But if you're trying to get a managing job, they don't ask you to manage, right? Because they probably don't even know what it takes to manage well enough. And so what they're looking for is some signal that you know that. Uh, and so they look, well, do you have a degree and where's it from? And uh, how good are the grades that you got when you went there? All of these things that that are, uh, I think, really orthogonally related to whether you actually possess the traits that they want you to possess. Um, and, that, and that actually assessing people takes a lot of work, work that no one is really, really willing to do. And so instead, we all want to outsource it to other people. Um, and so like you go pay $60,000 a year to, to get assessed, um, and then come to me and show me what your assessment says. But the people doing the assessment don't really, they're not doing the thing that you might hope that they would be doing. Um, they're doing their own thing that, that like their incentives lead them to do it in their little world. Uh, like when I'm teaching a class, I don't care about later telling McKinsey or Goldman Sachs whether this person would be a good employee for them. I'm trying to teach them psychology. Um, and so all of us are, are hoping that someone else in the chain is, is going to save us time. Uh, but no one really seems to do it. Um, which is, which is why I dream of this place where, you know, we, we come and work together and we, um, and because we have this freedom, you eventually can just do things that make it clear to people the skills that you have. Like you can't fake, uh, asking a question about the world, collecting data on it and writing it up in an, in an accessible way. Um, that like if you can produce, uh, an interesting blog post about a study that you ran that anyone could read and understand. Um, like even someone who's not putting that much work into, uh, assessing you can tell that like, you know what you're doing. Whereas if what you do is produce journal articles that, um, you know, obey all the norms of the field and, uh, they try to be inaccessible to outsiders, unless you are an expert in that field, I don't know if you wrote a good economics paper or not. Um, and so I'm just looking at like, well, what was, I do know which journals are good. Is this in a good journal? Okay. Then you must be a good practitioner of this. Um, which is why I have, I have the, this hope that like, if you actually conveyed, uh, the vibes well, if you actually taught people well, they would be able to do things that make assessing them very easy. And the point wasn't ever to make them very accessible. Um, the point was to, to do the things that we all wanted to do in the first place. That's my hope anyway. Yeah, and I think part of that, of course, is that the skills that we want in an employee or a colleague uh, are often difficult to measure. Uh, you know, just to take an example, I want a thoughtful person who can ask good questions. Uh, that's worth a lot to me as a as a friend. You know, forget as a scientific colleague. That's a lot of of the th it covers a lot of ground for me. And how do you know who that person is? Well, in real life, what you do is you have a lot of conversations with them and you figure out who's interesting and who isn't and, and spend your time accordingly. But um, it's very hard to assess managerial ability. It's very hard to assess integrity. It's very hard to assess a bunch of things. So we, we use screening and other types of forms of, of uh, activity that, you're right, we, we outsource it. Uh, and we know it's crude, and it's um, but it might be better than, than we're able to do. Um, but I, I think there's something else. I don't know if we'll we'll find it today, but you know, I think I think I've learned something profound from your 
essay about thinking about conversation. I'm not sure I've gotten to the sweet spot for thinking about education. And I I think it's a lot more than simply how overcoming, say, an intellectual challenge makes you feel or the confidence you gain um, from that. Those things are not unimportant. But, you know, for something that we spend billions of dollars on publicly and privately education, it's interesting how little we've thought about these questions. At one point you say, you know, I'd like to go to the literature. There isn't any on this question of vibe, feeling, emotion. Uh, The fact that those are not just accessible, but they're the first thing that comes to mind. I, I'm just without thinking about it. I have one of my favorite classes in in college. I'm not going to say what the subject was, but I remember two things about it. It made sense. I loved that. It, it, it fit together. And the second thing was, is that in office hours one time, the professor told me he got an article published, how excited he was. <laughs> That's, he lectured for hours. <laughs> I don't remember any of his lectures, but I do remember that he was really proud of it. And then he and then he confessed that, you know, after the third or fourth one, it's not that exciting. And kind of the thrill is gone. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> wow. Uh, I mean, you know, liberal arts universities will, will tell you that what you are doing there is learning how to learn, which sounds good. But, but then I don't think there's actually a strong theory about how the learning how to learn happens. That there's this trust that, yeah, you take a philosophy class and you take a math class, you take a biology class, and the emergent property of taking all those classes is you learn how to learn. But none of those individuals, uh, I think, are on mission for, for teaching people how to learn. They're there to teach people biology. Like, that, that's what's on the syllabus. And I think, in, in fact, the incentives are, are structured such that you often learn the opposite. What you learn is how to get good grades in these classes. Um, because that's what you're assessed on. So why would you learn anything else? That's the way that you make yourself legible to the university and to people afterward who are looking at your transcript. So like, what would it really take to to teach people how to to learn? Um, I, th- I think it might involve letting go of assessment. Um, and I think a lot of it would, it would involve not just trusting that there's some emergent property that you get from taking many different classes, um, that, that you need to approach it in some different way. Now, I think that's very important. I think the that's a statement about the nature of the the PhD experience and how when you become a teacher, you tend to teach what you were taught. If it's at the undergraduate level, you dumb down what you were taught at the graduate level. You don't think about that many of these students will never go on to graduate school. Maybe the only economics or psychology class they're going to take, and therefore, maybe you should teach it differently. Um, the idea that we might structure economics and biology and psychology and math as a um, a regime of practice rather than filling up the bucket of, with facts and, and regularities is alien to everything that our graduate education system does to the people we end up hiring as teachers. And... That's a whole nother conversation, but you're right. What teachers do is they play in their silo 
And the best ones, like your M&M thrower, um, inspire students. And I'm sure many of the students in that class loved that class, even though they didn't become uh, professional psychologists, as you chose to do, PhDs. But um, it requires a different kind of education. You know, I, I have a faculty, we have a member of our faculty here who told me, you know, his job in his class is to help our students become the best people they can be. Uh, well, I didn't get trained in that at Chicago in P- my <laughs> PhD program. <laughs> but I don't think it's it should be alien to how I teach an undergraduate who's never going to be a PhD in economics. And yet, um, don't have any, never never thought about it until recently. Yeah. Um the, the the class I taught most recently is negotiation and uh, and this is a class where um, th- there's so much that we convey to students I think in the in the parts of the class that we don't think that much about I think we so what what um, what students do a lot is they do you know mock negotiations and I think we we transmit the vibe in what those negotiations are about um, and really we think of of those negotiations it's just like it's really just a cover story for creating a situation where, um, where, you know, people can, can work on the concepts that we want them to work on. But the fact that we are doing a negotiation about buying a vineyard, actually, that means something. Uh, like we are conveying to students that like that is the kind of negotiation that we expect them to encounter in the world. Um, I think there's a reason why it's a negotiation for a vineyard rather than a negotiation for a parking lot. Um, and like the, the, those things mean different things where we are telling these students that like we expect them to be upper class people who would buy vineyards, um, which in the case of Columbia Business School, I think you know, maybe isn't uh, isn't inaccurate, but is a weird value to be conveying at the university level. And I think no one has, has ever really thought about what it meant that the negotiation is about a vineyard. They care a lot about uh, which concepts we hit. And those do matter. Um but if we're we're really trying to make people into good people, we should care a lot about what the cover story is for, or you know, what the situation is that we are putting people in. And you're newly married, and much yes. of marriage is about negotiation, and it's negotiation that has no price tags. Usually, there are some economists, maybe, but most human yeah. beings don't um, aren't negotiating with their spouses over. Uh, they're not haggling over price. They're haggling over responsibility. They're haggling over a variety of other things. And um, doing that as a full human being would seem like a very good skill that's never taught, as far as I know, maybe by some marriage counselors, but um, it's not in that class. And it it could belongs in there, it seems to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that I, I think if we took seriously the mission of making people better people, I, I would have taught that class differently. Um, that, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the guy who trained me how to teach negotiation did, did um, uh, describe it as a process of making um, uh, jerks into less jerks, um, which I do think is true, but uh, I never felt like I was actually given free enough reign to do that. And maybe that's what beyond the scope of what you know Columbia University thinks it's able to do. That it requires staking a claim in some values. You can't just go like, well, some of you are going to go cut down rainforests, and some of you are going to go run hospitals, and these are the same thing, and that's all good as long as you give money to us later. 
uh, I think you have to be willing to say like, it is possible for you to go do jobs that we think are bad. Um, and we would really prefer that you don't do them. Uh, I, I don't know. I, that's, that's obviously opens a dangerous can of worms. Um, but I, I do want to be able to talk to my students that like, I, there are bad actors in the world and some of you could become them, right? Like these people come from somewhere, they go get MBAs. I want to prevent you from becoming a bad actor. Um, and that's part of what could happen in this negotiation class that like, I want you to use these skills for good. And so I want to put you in situations where perhaps you might be tempted to use them for bad. And the lesson is how to use them for good. Um, it doesn't really happen that, uh, you know, I, I try to tell them not to lie and I try to put them in situations where, you know, lying, uh, actually ends up, sometimes ends up with worse outcomes, but, um, but it's, it's difficult. And, and I didn't feel like I actually had the legitimacy or, or the institutional mandate, uh, and support to do that. Yeah, but you're a psychologist. So you could also teach them how to overcome their natural inc inclination to be a bad actor. In theory, you could. I don't know if you actually could, but um, that'd be kind of cool if they wanted. You could give them the tools if they wanted. Yeah, they, they didn't want to be a bad actor, and you're going to give them the, maybe you're going to give them, the, you know, you're going to teach them R so they can, you know, use data to be an even worse actor. <laughs> R is yeah. pretty, date, pretty value neutral. Uh, in theory, negotiation is too, but of course it's not. It's part of a bigger yeah. picture. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other lever that I had to pull, right, is in the way that I organize my class. Um, and, and this is a way that I tried to convey the vibes that I thought would make people better people, which was, um, for one thing, trusting them and showing that I trusted them, that uh, so many classes have, have these Baroque um policies for what happens if you don't come to class. Uh, and sometimes they're punitive. You know, you have to come or I'll take points away um, or you have to get a doctor's note. And so I just said, like, it is important to come to class. It's a very experiential class and other people benefit from you being here too. So please do come to class. It is part of your grade. If you're not going to be here, all you have to do is fill out this form that says you're not going to be here. And you can click this button that says, uh, like, I have a good reason not to be here and I will trust you. And if you use this for nefarious purposes, all you're doing is stealing monopoly money. These, these points are made up. I really hope that you don't do it. Um, like I would be disappointed if you were, but I'm not going to police you because I think this is the way that humans should relate to one another. Um, so, so that's how I choose to treat you, uh, because I, I would like to be treated like this as well. Um, and, and I hope that that did a little bit to, uh, to like, produce this vibe of like, oh, isn't, isn't it good when we trust one another? And yeah, actually, people can abuse systems. But wouldn't you rather be in a system that treated you well, that could be abused rather than you get policed just as much as the person who is trying to, to do the bad thing? And it turns out that the person stealing the points, like they don't really do anything to you. Um, I'm, most of you are just going to get A's. In fact, I'm going to break the curve a little bit because I think the curve is dumb. Um, that's what I tried to do. My guest today has been Adam Mastriani. Adam, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. <laughs> thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.